Well, today we're continuing in this fascinating book of Daniel. It's a book in the Old Testament that talks about some of the things that took place after some of the people in Israel were taken into exile in Babylon. Last week, we had those three Israelites who went into the furnace, but we found out that they were protected. And as King Nebuchadnezzar looked down into that very hot furnace, so hot, in fact, that the soldiers who threw Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego into the furnace, they, the soldiers were burned up. But Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were spared, and they didn't even smell like smoke. <laughs> incredible protection and incredible deliverance. We also know that King Nebuchadnezzar looked down in there and saw not three, but four people. And one of them, he said, looked like one of the sons of God himself. So he knew there was a supernatural protection. And after that specific experience, he praised God and put out a proclamation saying that other people should praise the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But we also know that King Nebuchadnezzar tended to want to side with whoever had the most power at the moment. And so we know that his worship was kind of short-lived, as we're going to see today, because we're arriving now in chapter 4 of Daniel. If you have a Bible handy, I invite you to take that out. I'm going to be reading through all 37 verses of Daniel 4 when we get into it. But I want to start us thinking about the pride, which is a real setup for a fall, before we read through that chapter together. And then I'm going to make some important comments about some of the things that people have scoffed at or been skeptical of related to chapter four of Daniel. And we're gonna clarify a few issues. And I think you can be absolutely confident in the fact that we can trust God's word, the inspired scriptures to be truthful and trustworthy. So Greg Lazrado, I didn't know anything about Greg Lazrado until about two weeks ago. And I read an article about him, fascinating guy. We learn through Greg's story something that's very similar to what we're going to see about King Nebuchadnezzar. Where there is no humility, there will definitely be humiliation. That was the case with a guy named Greg. He was from Australia. In the late 1990s, Greg felt like he had such pride in his intellectual abilities and because he knew a thing or two about some of the direction that was starting to take shape with online structures and businesses, he, he started developing what he called adult entertainment websites, and the money started pouring into his bank accounts. Well, by 2003, after a very short rise to fame and fortune, Greg was driving a black Lamborghini, living between several multi-million dollar homes, a couple of them penthouses, hosting weekend long parties in Vegas for his webmasters and friends, at one point, in fact, Greg owned four Lamborghinis and seven BMWs. Several years later, as he was being interviewed for the article that I read, he said, yeah, looking back at that time, I realized that that was probably a little bit over the top. You think? <laughs> well, Greg craved attention and he craved admiration. He was kind of a praise junkie, in fact. There was no limit to his extravagant spending and lifestyle. At his financial peak, Greg's property portfolio alone was valued at over $30 million. And he was a very young man. That was in his 30s. 
not to mention the fact that he had many other assets. But his self-obsession and limitless lavish lifestyle sent Greg into a downward spiral. No surprise, especially as we look into Daniel chapter 4. He lost his marriage of three years. His reckless behavior and lifestyle translated into reckless business decisions and management. And what really didn't help him very much at all was he developed an addiction to heroin. In the end, Greg was completely bankrupt. By 2008, Greg was back where he started, living with both his parents, helping with the laundry, and taking out the trash. The only asset in his name at that point was a rusty old car. Greg wasn't alone in his obsession with self. In fact, if you look around, and you don't have to look around very far, our culture prides itself on pride. Isn't that something, that we pride ourselves on pride? And entire industries have been built on self-exaltation. We can see this in attention-seeking celebrities, social media bombarded with selfies. There are even lots of people dedicated to try to help you get the right selfie, the right lighting, the right uh, angle so that you're not looking up your nostrils when you take that selfie. There has been a recent Zoom boom of plastic surgery because so many people say, hey, I'm working from home anyway. I've got time to, to uh, go through some plastic surgery and heal, and I want to look my best for these business meetings. So what is behind all this focus on self and what can be done about it? That's what we're going to learn today, because there's a lot to be learned from this ancient king who had some modern problems. That king, Nebuchadnezzar III. We're going to look at that and find out. Remember, I told you that there was more than one Nebuchadnezzar in our very first session, and we're going to look more deeply into that today. Well, Nebuchadnezzar was at the top of his world, kind of like Greg Lazrado was at one point, at least for a season, for a minute as they might say today. His world changed in a way very similar to Greg's world. Both these men, one living around 550 BC and the other living in our contemporary world are extreme examples of what happened to people with tremendous pride and self-obsession. We can all relate though, and we can all learn from their life stories which serve to validate the saying, pride goeth before a fall. And we're gonna find that in this chapter, chapter four of the book of Daniel. It's such a good read that even though it's a bit lengthy, I think the narrative needs to be read unbroken because it really speaks for itself. And then I'll make some comments, uh, comments after I've read through it. Here's the outline that you can follow along if you'd like to. It's kind of broken up into these parts pretty naturally. There is in a sense, sort of a prologue and that's followed up with bookend epilogue at the very end because Nebuchadnezzar is so ecstatic about having been delivered that he's going to start by saying, these good things happened to me, let me tell you about them. And then he dives into the dream. And then at the very end, he kind of brings that back in again and circles around to say, and so God is really great. So we're gonna see the prologue, the king's dream, the interpretation of the dream by Daniel, the humiliation of the dreamer, which means that the dream actually came true because it was a prophetic dream. And then the salvation or the exaltation of the dreamer, because those who are humble will be exalted. Let me read that for you. 
all the way through chapter four of Daniel. Buckle your seatbelts. Here we go. King Nebuchadnezzar sent this message to the people of every race and nation and language throughout the world. Peace and prosperity to you. I want you all to know about the miraculous sign, signs and wonders the Most High God has performed for me. How great are his signs, how powerful his wonders. His kingdom will last forever, his rule through all generations. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was living in my palace in comfort and prosperity. But one night I had a dream that frightened me. I saw visions that terrified me as I lay in my bed. So I issued an order calling in all the wise men of Babylon so they could tell me what my dream meant. When all the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and fortune tellers came in, I told them the dream, but they could not tell me what it meant. At last, Daniel came in before me and I told him the dream. He was named Belteshazzar after my God and the spirit of the holy gods in him. I said to him, Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, I know that the spirit of the holy God is in you and that no mystery is too great for you to solve. Now, tell me what my dream means. While I was lying in my bed, this is what I dreamed. I saw a large tree in the middle of the earth. The tree grew very tall and strong, reaching high into the heavens for all the world to see. It had fresh green leaves and it was loaded with fruit for all to eat. Wild animals lived in its shade and birds nested in its branches. All the world was fed from this tree. Then as I lay there dreaming, I saw a messenger, a holy one coming down from heaven. And the messenger shouted, cut down the tree and lop off its branches, shake off its leaves and scatter its fruit, chase the wild animals from its shade and the birds from its branches, but leave the stump and the roots in the ground bound with a band of iron and bronze and surrounded by tender grass. Now let him be drenched with the dew of heaven and let him live with the wild animals among the plants of the field. For seven periods of time, let him have the mind of a wild animal instead of the mind of a human. For this has been decreed by the messengers. It is commanded by the holy ones so that everyone may know that the most high rules over the kingdoms of the world. He gives them to anyone he chooses, even to the lowliest of people. Belteshazzar, that was the dream that I, King Nebuchadnezzar, had. Now, tell me what it means, for none of the wise men of my kingdom can do so. But you can tell me because the spirit of the holy gods is in you. And then we have the interpretation of the dream. Upon hearing this, Daniel, also known as Belteshazzar, was overcome for a time, frightened by the meaning of the dream. And then the king said to him, Belteshazzar, don't be alarmed by the dream and what it means. Belteshazzar replied, I wish the events foreshadowed in this dream would happen to your enemies, my lord, not to you. The tree you saw was growing very tall and strong, reaching high into the heavens for all the world to see. It had fresh green leaves and was loaded with fruit for all to eat. Wild animals lived in its shade and birds nested in its branches. That tree, your majesty, is you. For you have grown strong and great. Your greatness reaches up to the heavens and your rule to the ends of the earth. 
And then you saw a messenger, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, cut down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump and the roots in the ground, bound with a band of iron and bronze and surrounded by tender grass. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven. Let him live with the animals of the field for seven periods of time. And this is what the dream means, your majesty, and what the Most High has declared will happen to my Lord the King. You will be driven from human society, and you will live in the fields with the wild animals, and you will eat grass like a cow, and you will be drenched with the dew of heaven. Seven periods of time will pass while you live this way until you learn that the Most High rules over the kingdoms of the world and gives them to anyone he chooses. But the stump and roots of the tree were left in the ground. This means that you will receive your kingdom back again when you have learned that heaven rules. King Nebuchadnezzar, please accept my advice. Stop sinning and do what is right. Break from your wicked past and be merciful to the poor. Perhaps then you will continue to prosper. Then we get to the fulfillment of the dream, the humiliation of the dreamer in verse 28. But all these things did happen to King Nebuchadnezzar. Twelve months later, he was taking a walk on the flat roof of the royal palace in Babylon. And as he looked out across the city, he said, <laughs> Look at this great city of Babylon. By my own mighty power, I have built this beautiful city as my royal residence to display my majestic splendor. <laughs> While these words were still in his mouth, a voice called down from heaven, O King Nebuchadnezzar, this message is for you. You are no longer ruler of this kingdom. You will be driven from human society. You will live in the fields with wild animals and you will eat grass like a cow. Seven periods of time will pass while you live this way until you learn that the Most High rules over the kingdoms of the world and gives them to anyone he chooses. That same hour, the judgment was fulfilled, and Nebuchadnezzar was driven from human society. He ate grass like a cow. He was drenched with the dew of heaven. He lived this way until his hair was long as eagle's feathers, and his nails were like bird's claws. And then we see the salvation of the dreamer. Verse 34, after this time had passed, I, Nebuchadnezzar, looked up to heaven. My sanity returned, and I praised and worshiped the Most High and honored the one who lives forever. His rule is everlasting, and his kingdom is eternal. All the people of the earth are nothing compared to him. He does as he pleases. Among the angels of heaven and among the people of the earth, no one can stop him or say to him, What do you mean by doing these things? When my sanity returned to me, so did my honor and glory and kingdom. My advisors and nobles sought me out, and I was restored as head of my kingdom with even greater honor than before. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and glorify and honor the king of heaven. All his acts are just and true, and he is able to humble the proud. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. This is the prologue. In a nutshell, short version is, hey guys, I want everybody in the world to know the greatness of the Most High God. Let me tell you how I found out how great God really is. 
That's my paraphrase of it. Then we can see the king's dream. This is a picture of what Babylon must have looked like, especially based on archaeological finds. I had shared with you before a couple of weeks ago about the Babylonian gate, the Ishtar gate, which uh, Joy and I have had the privilege of seeing with our own eyes in the Pergamon Museum in Berlin. And it was this great, wonderful city with lots of tile work and glazed art, and it must have been so colorful and magnificent. So for him to be up on top of one of these flat roofs gazing out over the city, it might have looked very much like that. And there he was, the man of the dream. He was at ease in his house. He was prospering in his palace. He was at the top of his game. He was living the high life. He was ruling the greatest empire in the world at that time. His enemies were afraid to attack him because he was so powerful, which means that there was relative peace in that part of the world at that time. His wife had given him a son, an heir to the throne. He had just completed a new palace in the south back where they said y'all a lot because it was Southern Babylon. And he had just completed this new palace and built a whole new capital in Southern Babylon. What more could a guy want? He even had a camel he named Lamborghini and another one named BMW. Okay, probably, probably not that, but all the rest of the stuff was true. But his prosperity resulted in pride. Did you hear in the reading of that how many times he referred to himself, my kingdom, my palace, my greatness, I, I, I. It was all about himself. If he had a cell phone, he probably would have filled that cell phone full of selfies. He wasn't about to bow his knee to anybody because he had that much pride. He figured that he was the leader and everybody else should bow to him. Well, which Nebuchadnezzar is this, by the way? And this is where it starts to get important for us to understand the trustworthiness of God's word. Nabonidus, Nebuchadnezzar III, is the Nebuchadnezzar of this chapter of Daniel. This was Nabonidus. And let's look at the succession of Babylonian kings because it's important that we clearly understand which king is which depending on which chapter we're looking at. Otherwise, it'd be easy to confuse some of the chapters and to think that there are some mistakes written into uh, this book of the Bible, and there are no mistakes. We have the Nebuchadnezzars. There's the first one, Nebuchadnezzar, who would be considered the first, and that would be Nabopolassar. That was just before Daniel, Daniel came on the scene, and he ruled 625 to 605 BC. Then we get the second Nebuchadnezzar, Nabopolassar's son, and that one's the Nebuchadnezzar of Daniel's chapter one through three, chapters one through three. And Nebuchadnezzar II had sons and relatives who ruled after him. Some of the relatives were not sons necessarily. They were related, but not as sons. Let's look at them. We had Merodach, Nereglissar. For some reason, my spell check didn't have these listed there. It was kind of strange. Labashi Marduk. And if you'll notice from the number of years, numbers of years here from their rule and reign, they didn't reign very long. Uh, they didn't have a whole lot to be written about. So that's really all we know about them was that they had very short-lived reigns there. So that's the first three Nebuchadnezzars. Nebuchadnezzar III, Nabonidus, uh, ruled from 555 to 539. That's the Nebuchadnezzar of Daniel 4. 
So we can see that there was a succession of kings and three of them were actually related to one another. So there was a bloodline of Nebuchadnezzar's. Uh, why the name? Why would Nebuchadnezzar choose to call himself by that name? Because that line of succession had been broken. As I've mentioned, some of those others that came after number two um, were not specifically blood related. And so that would be the case with Nebuchadnezzar III. Why would he choose to use that name? Well, because he was a usurper. <laughs> he knew that he wanted to gain the respect and trust of the people that he was going to be serving. And he figured, well, the best way to do that would be to just use the name of the Nebuchadnezzars because those were the people, the, the leaders that the people had really trusted. When they heard the name Nebuchadnezzar, it was almost like in Egypt where they would use the term Pharaoh. Nebuchadnezzar as a name almost became synonymous with a title. And so he wanted to take on the name as a title, which is why Neb III became another Nebuchadnezzar even though he wasn't specifically related as a son directly in line. And he often referred to himself simply as Nebuchadnezzar. Just like I am Galen Clark Cawthorn II. I don't usually say, hi, I'm Clark II. I, I don't use that. He probably wouldn't have either. And so people just came to know him as Nebuchadnezzar. And a lot of times because people would read in history about the Nebuchadnezzars, it was almost like they would skip past the fact that there were a bunch of different people each using that name, and they would tend to think erroneously that there was only one Nebuchadnezzar through the entire book of Daniel, which is not the case. And then I found out something in my study about Daniel, which is very unusual. There was sort of a fourth Nebuchadnezzar. You think, what? He's not written about in Daniel. No, he was not. Does this guy look familiar to you, though? Saddam Hussein, 1937 to 2006. He was the president of Iraq, which was former Babylonia, and referred to himself as Nebuchadnezzar II. He actually referred to himself that way because he too was a usurper, evidently. And he didn't know enough about the history, and so he just latched onto that and called himself the second, even though he would have actually been the fourth. Either that, or he too combined the Nebuchadnezzars as one title all the way through the book of Daniel. But he was trying to conjure up something for his people that would make them think that he was tapped into this power of somebody that could be trusted. Considering the dream here in chapter four that I just read, and considering the end of Saddam Hussein's life, I don't think I would want to name any of my children Nebuchadnezzar. Things did not go well for the Nebuchadnezzars, especially when they were prideful and tried to usurp other people's authority. Hussein also was pride-filled and would not bow his knee to anybody, and his demise was ugly. Many of us lived through it. We watched it on television. In 2006, Saddam Hussein was sentenced to death by hanging after being convicted of crimes against humanity by the Iraqi Special Tribunal was not a pretty death. So we're continuing in our history of the Nebuchadnezzars. And I think this is where it gets exciting for me because I love Bible history. And I love to see where things kind of fit together like a puzzle because it gets to be like a super sleuth looking at things that start to make this appear as three-dimensional and trustworthy in scripture. We have three different puzzle pieces that show us why Daniel chapters one through three are different events from Daniel chapter four. Some would try to combine them and say, well, they're same event, same dream, 
but just written about from different angles. No, that's not the case. Puzzle piece number one. There were different details from chapters two and chapter four. In chapter four, Nebuchadnezzar actually tells the wise men his dream. As you, as you might recall from chapter two, he didn't want to tell them the dream. He said, no, if you really know how to interpret stuff, you're gonna to have to tell me what the dream is that I had, which would be like fortune telling. That would be incredible. Who does that? And even his wisest men said, nobody can, no human can do that. Which is why when God gave Daniel the ability, Nebuchadnezzar and everybody else knew, huh, this is pretty special. Puzzle piece number two, there's a Hebrew word for father, which is important because it can be translated two different words. It can be used for either father or it can be used for a predecessor. And that's important. The English standard version of the Bible says, Belshazzar, when he tasted wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought. Well, Babylonian historical documents show that Belshazzar in Daniel 5 was the, are you ready, son of Nabonidus. He was not a descendant of Nebuchadnezzar II. So people start to look at these different facts and they start to try to think, oh, there's a big mistake here. No, there's no mistake. It's one of those lost in translation mysteries that gets resolved once you understand the context by using the right word in interpretation. This mystery gets resolved very quickly because suddenly we take the timelines of all the rulers in Babylon and guess to where we get the, uh, those timelines from. Archaeology. I'll show you something in a minute, which is really cool. Uh, Babylonian historical documents give us the timeline for those rulers, and that way we can know that there's a correct Hebrew definition of the word father. The other possible translation for that word is predecessor. So the king who took the goblets from Jerusalem and the temple there was Nebuchadnezzar II, who was the predecessor, not an ancestor. So that helps us with part two of this three-part puzzle. Then we get puzzle, num uh, puzzle piece number three. After Nabonidus, Neb three became king, he immediately set out to start building his own palace and establish his own new capital in Southern Babylon, where they say y'all, in the Arabian desert, in a place called Tima, later called Babylon. And archeology span has confirmed this. Here's where it gets good. When he left for the Southern palace in the new capital, guess who Nabonidus put in charge of the old city back up north, the old city of Babylon, as his co-regent. That would be his son. Now, how many years did it take before the new capital and palace were complete? Four years. And here's where the archaeological evidence gets very exciting, and it's an important puzzle piece as we solve this timeline mystery. The Babylonian Chronicles from cuneiform uh, clay tablets, which they have a huge collection that were in the British Museum for a time. They record something very strange in the fourth year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign. He wasn't heard from for bum, 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 seven years. How cool is that? Those are the seven missing years when Nebuchadnezzar III was fulfilling the dream by being insane or living like a wild animal and having to do cover his body. Isn't that something? We start to put all these pieces together 
And the Bible is continually affirmed and validated even by archeological evidence as we see in the case because we have so much Persian archeology span that has been done. And I love it to see that when it takes shape. Now we could trust it to begin with because we have faith that God's word is inspired, but it gives us even a stronger confidence in God's word when we can see that archeology span continues to show us what we knew already to be true. And then we see the interpretation of the dream, starting in verse 19. We see something about Daniel, the prophet of God, who was afraid to tell Nabonidus the meaning of the dream, not because necessarily he was fearing for his own life. He had clearly demonstrated that he was strong and willing to stand in the face of adversity, regardless of what the dream meant. But I think it's because he had respect for this king. God had allowed Daniel to be promoted into being in charge of all the wise men in Babylon. He was the chief of all the astrologers and magicians and interpreters and wise men. But I think because he had respect for the king and given the fact that he was such a diplomat, as we can see even in the way he worded it as he was telling the king, he says, oh, I wish this would happen to your enemies, O king, but I'm afraid this is actually for you. So he was afraid to tell the king about this dream to begin with, but the king insisted that Daniel tell him all about it, including the interpretation. Then we see something about Daniel's God. Daniel's God and God's decree are spelled out in verses 24 through 27. God has to deal with pride because pride will keep anybody from recognizing and respecting his authority. And he will, he will definitely deal with pride in all of us. But we also see that God is incredibly patient and he's incredibly redemptive. We see that in this story as well. Those who live for a time through a season of humiliation will see the patience and mercy of God who exalts those who are genuinely humbled. And then we see the humiliation of the dreamer. Do you hear how quickly God dealt with this king when I was reading through what happened there? He utters these words. Is not this great, this is Nebuchadnezzar who utters these words. Is not this great Babylon, which I have built with my mighty powers, the royal residence and for the glory of my majesty. Boom, down he fell. <laughs> Within the hour, he was, while the words were still in his mouth, he hears from God. And God pronounces his judgment, which was the fulfillment of the dream he had experienced a year earlier. It certainly came to fruition. You would have kind of hoped that maybe it would have been a recurring dream for Nebuchadnezzar so that he would have been reminded to stay humble. But it took just one year for him to forget all about that and to continue to exalt himself and to forget all about God. And he got his comeuppance. Pride and self-exaltation cause us to forget about God and we forget to respect that he's actually the one in charge. Of the vice of pride, C.S. Lewis wrote this in his little book, Mere Christianity. There is no fault which we are more unconscious of in ourselves, and the more we have it in ourselves, the more we dislike it in others. Ain't that the truth? <laughs> it really is easy, isn't it, to see the faults of others while missing those very same faults in ourselves? Pride is at the root of that blindness to our own sin. For seven years, Nabonidus wandered like the wild beast in his dream. He lost his mind. In the desert near Tima, the new Babylon he had built for himself, 
He ate grass like a cow or like an oxen. His hair grew so long that he looked like Tom Hanks in the movie Castaway, <laughs> or as described in verse 33, as long as eagle's feathers, and his nails were like the claws of a bird. He was like a beast. And as we saw at the very beginning in the introduction, we're seeing the difference between those who recognize God and live within his created order. We're exalted and elevated because we are made in his image. But for those who fail to recognize that he's in charge and that we're made in his image, it's like we go down into being like a beast in our mentality. And in this case, it was the personification of living like a beast. Well, one of the most powerful rulers on earth was now completely humiliated by God. But this same man was also the recipient of God's grace. And he would tell you that from the gates of heaven, if he could talk, he would say, wow, that awful season of humiliation was the best thing that could have happened to me. I am the man I am today because of that season of humiliation, because it caused me to recognize that God is great. He is the most high God, and we need to humble ourselves. And once I did, he exalted me. He saved me, and he lifted me back up again. He restored my sanity, and he restored my kingdom. Well, we can see that salvation of the dreamer. Jesus said in Luke 18, those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Nabonidus had really exalted himself, and boy, howdy, did he ever get humbled. <laughs> but when he had finally humbled himself, came to his senses, recognized God, he was exalted. For him, this was a salvation experience. This was a conversion. He was saved from a life living as a wild beast. And when he got so low that he had nowhere else to look but up, he did look up. He looked up to heaven and acknowledged God, and he said, my sanity returned, and I praised and worshiped the Most High and honored the one who lives forever. He wanted everybody to know just how great the Most High God really was. And that's what he had written in the prologue and then in the epilogue of his chapter here. His epilogue echoes the prologue. It says, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and glorify and honor the King of Heaven. All his acts are just and true. Isn't that something? He could go through seven years of total humiliation, and yet he could say, but I deserved it. God's justice is just. We can trust him for that. We can all trust God to be just. And in the end, when he's going to judge the living and the dead, we can trust that his justice is going to be meted out, but it's fair justice. We can trust him. He's a just God. And he says, and he is able to humble the proud. And boy, is he ever. Let me end with this true story too. Pride sank the ship. We can become so confident in our own strength and abilities or intelligence or self-importance that we can plow straight into a season of our own humiliation. We can, in a sense, sink our own ship. That happened to a guy named Lieutenant Commander Donald T. Hunter, who was an experienced navigator. He even taught naval navigation at the U.S. Naval Academy. And in 1923, during a training exercise off the coast of California, an unexpected, really thick fog rolled in. Hunter was the captain of the ship you see in this picture. It was a destroyer called the USS Delphi, 
named after a guy whose last name was Delphi, the flagship of a flotilla of seven vessels. Hunter couldn't get a strong read on their location, but he was known for his self-confident decisiveness, his magic infallibility to guide his ship. Uh-oh. <laughs> Anytime you start getting described that way, that's not a good thing. He was so confident in his own abilities that Hunter plowed the USS Delphi into some rocks near the shoreline. All the other destroyers in the flotilla followed and all seven ships were sunk. That incident is still considered to this day one of the worst peacetime naval disasters in U.S. history. Wah, wah, wah. Here's the good news, though. Christ sends none away empty, but those who are full of themselves. There's a pastor by the name of Donald Barnhouse who said that. Here's the good news that we see in Nabonidus' story, a.k.a. Nebuchadnezzar III. Those who humble themselves will receive God's mercy and grace. That's the prerequisite for obtaining this free salvation and grace that God offers, just to recognize that we can't do it in our own strength. That's it. He just wants us to recognize it and to admit it. We continue to see God's gracious character throughout the Bible. In Jesus, in the New Testament, we see God's mercy poured out to people who don't deserve forgiveness. We see that he willingly receives all who will empty themselves of pride and admit that they just need his forgiveness. Christ sends none away empty, but those who are full of themselves. When he says that those who reject Christ are condemned already, guess who does the condemning? It's those who reject Christ. Because everybody else can freely receive the grace and mercy and salvation that God holds out to every individual, everybody. Well, that's an important choice then. Are we going to place our confidence in ourselves or in God, the one that Nabonidus recognized? Every one of us can make that choice. Every one of us. I would ask, where are you placing your confidence today? Let's pray together. God, I pray that all of us would recognize that like Nabonidus, Nebuchadnezzar III, it's easy to place confidence in ourselves, but it doesn't end well for those who do. And because pride goeth before a fall, I pray that all of us would be open to your Holy Spirit's prompting, that we would be truthful about ourselves and recognize that, yeah, I, I have that ability to be blind to my own pride and my own sin, even though I hate it in others. And I pray that all of us would recognize that we need desperately this free salvation, this grace that God offers to every single person on the planet. And that all we have to do to obtain it is to recognize that we can't do anything to earn it. We can just accept it as a gift because of what Christ did for us. It's because of Christ's gift on the cross that makes that poss possible for us. And I thank you that you allow us to walk hand in hand with you after we have made that choice and that we can walk with fellow believers who have made that same decision to follow you and to accept your grace because we don't have to walk that road alone so that even when things get tough, even when we have to navigate through a pandemic, we can trust you through it all. And these things I pray in Jesus' name.